Amen. Thank you, choir, and uh, thank you, uh, Sharon. That was really good. Thank you for playing the piano. Very good playing just then. Outstanding. If we were in a, if we were in a charismatic church, y'all would be breaking out in applause right now. It was really, really good, and the choir was so good tonight. Thank you, choir, on a Monday night to have the choir. That's really great. Uh, excellent. And, uh, you know, Matt, you got up and ran out, right, as I was getting ready to preach. What was that about? Everything okay? Okay, I'm glad to have you back. Good. All right. Let me invite all of you to open up your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah 6 is where we'll be uh, this evening. As you're turning there, a couple of things I want to say. Thank you for uh, having me here at First Baptist Church Gadsden. It's only taken six years uh, to invite me back. I was here, what was I here for before? Do you remember? Something like this. So you've had several of some things like this, and you had to wait till now to have me back. Three nights. But three nights this week. Okay, good. Yeah, thank you. And I'm very thankful for uh, how you treat Matt and Whitney. I'm not sure what all uh, Matt has told you about our relationship, but he did come to Dolphin Way while I was a pastor there, and I uh, was a young man, still a young man. Uh, one of your nice church ladies here said we're watching him grow up. So, yeah, I don't know what that means. <laughs> At some point, you are going to finally get to maturity, I suppose. And uh, anyway, I got the chance to watch him come through college and watch the Lord uh, work in his life and sense a real call on his life and uh, waiting on the Lord to finally bring him a woman. And he did in Whitney. Maybe the best thing besides the Lord Jesus that's happened to Matt would be Whitney. And then, of course, the great children. And this church loves standing in this pulpit. It is a beautiful church. I have been taking pictures of it, uh, sending them to my wife. Uh, she wanted to be here, was planning on being here. And her mom, who lives in Brookhaven, Mississippi, uh, fell last week sometime and broke her shoulder. And so Connie's going to go there and spend some time. I don't know if they're going to have an operation or not, but she just passed through Birmingham a few hours ago on the way to uh, Brookhaven. So as you think of it, you can pray for Nina Rose Smith. As Matt said, my name's Clint. Uh, pastor church in Charlotte, North Carolina. Charlotte is my home. It's where I grew up. I did not grow up a Southern Baptist, though. I grew up as a Presbyterian. Any other ex-Presbyterians in here? Right, okay, yeah, some ex-Presbyterians. I uh, grew up a, a Presbyterian uh, in the Presbyterian USA, so not even the good kind of Presbyterian. <laughs> it wasn't even the PCA. It was the liberal kind of Presbyterian. And I never really actually heard the gospel uh, until, I guess I heard it in the Apostles' Creed, until I went to a summer camp, and a man at summer camp explained the gospel to me and um, what it means to become a Christian, how Jesus lived perfectly, died in the place of sinners, God raised him from the dead. If I'll turn from my sin and believe that, I can be saved. And so as an 11-year-old child, I uh, did that and gave my life to Christ. And we stayed in the Presbyterian Church in Charlotte. And uh, I didn't know that you did church any differently. Presbyterians are very quiet in church. Um, and I ended up going to a Baptist church in Roanoke, Virginia one time. Went visited uh, some people there, friends of ours, and we stayed uh, the weekend with them. And uh, they were the kind of Baptists that go to church on vacation. I mean, that's a different kind. That's another level, right? I mean, like, a lot of y'all go on vacation, you're not going to make it to church when you're on vacation. Well, these people, I mean, they went to church on vacation. That's, that struck me as something. And so when we went and visited them in Roanoke, Virginia, 
uh, we had to go to church with them. Because we were in their house, and they were like, hey, it's Sunday. It's the Lord's Day. We're going to church. So me and my mom and dad and my sister piled up at First Baptist Church, Roanoke, Virginia. I had never been in a Baptist church before. And a man standing behind a pulpit like this opened the Bible and talked in a way I'd never heard, preaching with authority, I mean, even like raising his voice, which you wouldn't do if you're a Presbyterian, raising his voice. And I thought, that is exactly what I want to do with the rest of my life. I don't want to have to be a Presbyterian uh, preacher. I want to be a Baptist preacher. So we came home and found a Baptist church in Charlotte, talked my mom and dad into going to the Baptist church. I didn't know any difference in the doctrine. I was 16 years old. And we, uh, two weeks later, joined the Baptist church. And that happens to be the church that I pastor right now, Hickory Grove Baptist Church. Baptized there, discipled there in the 11th and 12th grade, and uh, had a chance to go back and now pastor the church. It's my home church. If I have a home Baptist church, that is it. My mom and dad are there. Uh, my boys were raised there in that church, went to school there, and uh, very thankful to be able to serve a church. And thankful for some of the things you guys have here. You know, tonight we sit around and a lot of you are eating down there. There, there is very little that can... I'm going to get to the Bible in a minute. There's very little that can take the place of a church community of actual, genuine Christian fellowship, of taking care of one another, of having your children. You know, I'm just so thankful for Matt and Whitney, their children coming up in an environment where it's intergenerational. They've got great, uh, they've got 17 or 18 grandmothers and granddads that are, that are loving them. And they're going to come up in a church and love the church. So I'm very thankful for that. So with that said, y'all keep being nice to the Alexanders. All right, let's go to the Bible. Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to preach Isaiah chapter 6 tonight. It's a passage that you've heard before. I'm sure Matt has done an excellent job with it. Isaiah chapter 6. And then tomorrow night, I'm going to preach out of Romans. I'm going through Romans uh, at my church right now. 50 years old. I just turned 50. And uh, decided at 50, I'm going to preach through Romans. I was going to do it at 40, but I didn't feel mature enough. And I uh, turned 50, and somebody said that 50 was the new 40. So, all right, 50, I'm going to preach Romans. That's what I'm doing. And I'm still not sure I'm mature enough, but we're going through it. And so what I'd like to do tomorrow night is preach Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. And then the next night, uh, Wednesday, preach Romans chapter 1, verse 18, which deals with the wrath of God. So Wednesday night, y'all sit up close. We're going to talk about the wrath of God on Wednesday night. But before we do that, let's talk about Isaiah 6. If you found it, why don't you stand? We'll read together God's Word. Isaiah chapter 6. We'll start in verse 1 and read down to verse 8. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's begin in verse 1. <clears throat> the text says, In the year that King Uzziah died... I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. One called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, 
I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. One of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth, and he said, Behold, this has touched, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the grace you've given us in Jesus. I pray that by your grace, you would bring a real sense of awareness of your presence, a love for your holiness, a devotion to the Lord Jesus. God, thank you for so many years of faithfulness at First Baptist Church. We pray that you would continue to use this body of believers to reach people for Christ here. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> so many different churches' mission statements, I'm guessing in your church, there is the word that we do this for the glory of God, that we exist to glorify God. We want to work to the glory of the Lord. Oftentimes we have a hard time getting a grasp on what it is when we say the glory of God. What do you mean the glory of God? What did the Reformers, think about to the Puritans, what did the Reformers mean when they said it in Latin, soli deo gloria, to the glory of God alone? What do we mean that we're saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, according to the Bible alone, and that happens to the glory of God alone? God's glory, it's hard to get your hands on it. God's glory is that which, hold, that, that which is the glue that sort of holds us together. God's glory is the promise that the struggles that you face, the things that you go through, the hurts and the failures. Most of us here have been alive long enough to go through some sort of trauma. Someone close dying, someone loved leaving some job needed, lost. So, so how do we take the glory of God? And I think this passage speaks to it. How do we take the glory of God and bring that to bear where we live? Your, your hurts, failures, dead ends, bankruptcies, brokenheartedness, those things, we believe, those things do not happen in vain. There's reason behind a lot of people talk about God's glory. One of my favorite preachers, John Piper, John Piper said that God's glory is the infinite excellencies of the divine essence. I don't even really know what that means. Sometimes it's hard to understand. One of my favorite New Testament professors and theologians uh, is at Southern Seminary. I didn't study there. That's where Matt studied. And uh, it's a great, great seminary. It's the flagship seminary of the Southern Baptist Convention. In fact, Southern Baptist Seminary, if you didn't know this, it is the largest seminary in the history of Christianity. Right now, this is something, uh, we don't have many things that Southern Baptists would be proud of. This is one of them. Right now, there are more men being trained for pastoral ministry at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary than there ever have been in the history of Christendom. That is a really good thing, something to be thankful for. A man named Tom Schreiner is a professor there and also serves as a pastor and Tom Schreiner, when he talks about 
the glory of God. He says to, to glorify God is, is for us to actually see the supremacy of God in everything, that God really is our King. And if God is not the all-glorious Creator and Redeemer, then really this world is random chaos. That, that life doesn't have any sort of destiny. In fact, our only human destiny is the graveyard. Isn't that what Paul, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10? Whatever you do, whatever you do, do that to the glory of God. Well, to reckon with God's glory is one thing. But to reckon with His glory, we have to at some point actually wrestle with His holiness. Glory and holiness. That's what we see in this famous passage. Isaiah chapter 6. Here in Isaiah chapter 6, we watch as Isaiah reckons with this, um, this new reality. He's confronted with something. This new reality that promises him nothing but worry, confusion. Truthfully, if you live long enough, it can feel sometimes like you get knocked off center. If you ever get knocked off center, sometimes it can feel like you just don't get your, get your footing. And what I want to do tonight, in the time we have together, the time that it takes a sermon, aren't you glad for the TV ministry that keeps Matt preaching about 30 minutes on a Sunday morning? <laughs> Who knows what he would do if y'all didn't have the cameras in here. Well, what I want to do in the short time we have together is um, just show you how, from the Bible, how the glory of God rearranges us and changes us, how God uses His glory, how the glory of God cleanses us, how His glory sustains us, how, how God's glory in Jesus Christ centers us and, and, and settles us so that by His grace and for His glory, you can face whatever this world brings your way. And, and you can do that and, and bring honor back on. It's not just slogging through life. You can live your life and actually bring honor back on to the name of Jesus. So here's the theme tonight of this passage. <clears throat> You're going to be amazed by the brilliance of this statement. You are made to glorify God. That's the thing. You are made to glorify God. Let me give you two points. I'll start with the first one. Here's the first one. Number one, hard times. Hard times are here for God's glory. God gives us those. It's not the devil doing that. It's the Lord. Let me show you where I get that. Notice how the passage begins in verse 1. Let's go to the text. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. Notice how it begins. Isaiah tells us, In the year that King Uzziah died. Now stop there. That little phrase right there is a historical marker. It's telling us something in the Bible. It's putting us into context, real-time history. Isaiah is telling us when this is happening. So then you have to ask questions about it. Okay, in the year King Uzziah died, why is that so remarkable? Well, Uzziah, if you go and read in Chronicles, Uzziah was the king <clears throat> in Israel for 52 years. 52 years. Not only 52 years, 52 great years. Go ahead and read 1 Kings and 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, if you can get through it, you're reading it, and you see how the kingdom kind of swivels back and forth. Sometimes things go well, sometimes they don't. 
with, with Uzziah on the throne, Israel did well. The economy was good. military was strong. People were happy. The city was stable. Things were going well, humming right along. People were hopeful under Uzziah's reign. When, when they're hopeful, the economy expands. People are, are not afraid to spend money. Feels good. And while King Uzziah was on the throne, things were going well in Israel. People had a peace of mind. Families were sturdy. Nobody was worried about what's next. The nation prospered, but when King Uzziah died, Isaiah felt it. When King Uzziah died, he had been a leper living over by himself. He had leprosy. He's in a home by himself. When he died, that's when Israel started to crumble and hope started to crumble with him. You see, what happened when the Assyrians heard that Uzziah was dead, the Assyrians started standing up like they were strong. So now the Assyrians living north of Israel, they are threatening to come down. Read about the priesthood. The priesthood inside the temple is weak. They were theologically thin. Now, with Uzziah gone, Isaiah is feeling it. His world is falling apart. With the king dead, there are going to be real questions. Anxieties about the future. Ever felt like that? Anxieties about the future. I remember... When I was just a kid, you know, when you're a kid, you're not, not really aware of what's going on in your house with mom and dad and with work. And my dad had started a business. Um, he and a couple of guys, a film business, and things went well for a little bit. But I remember hearing mom and dad talk late at night, and, and, and dad, I'd never seen him actually worry. You, you, you feel the weight of it. Now, with the king dead... There are anxieties showing up about the future. Some of you have felt that. The, the, the disorienting, the sudden disorienting shock of a loss, a phone call. A few years ago, my, my son, who was in the Navy at the time, we, Connie and I went on vacation. Uh, my wife and I on vacation. My son, who's 22 years old and doing pretty good now. His head's a little hard, but he's doing all right. And uh, we, we got a call. It's, it's, the, it's the dreaded call. Two o'clock in the morning, the phone rings. My son has gone through a three-story window where he's stationed, and they didn't think he was going to make it. So I had to wake Connie up, and the, the, just the shock. I remember the, just the chill. You ever, you ever felt that kind of shock? Or maybe you remember back in 2008, 2009, when the economy tanked so bad across America, When you lose almost everything. Or if you have someone close, a friend, just suddenly gone. In the text, now you've got to bring all of that emotion and dump it here on Isaiah 6, verse 1. Isaiah got a great big hole right in the middle of him. You ever been knocked on your back so hard that you can't get your breath? Isaiah was. Isaiah was. Look what he saw in verses 1 and 2. In the year that King Uzziah died, that's when it happened. I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. You see, in the year that the king died, that's when I saw the king. 
Israel's king dies, but here's something for you. Israel's God still lives. Uzziah dies in a hospital somewhere, and the king of kings sits on a throne. That's what he's being reminded of right here. You think the king that is controlling everything is gone? He's gone. The real king is still there. It's good for you to look at, at verses 1 and, two, uh, 1 and 2. Every symbol, honestly, every symbol of Isaiah's vision is significant. I mean, you can look at it on the year, verse 1, the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. That word, Lord, L-O-R-D, is the word Adonai in Hebrew. It means the sovereignty of God. Once, I, once my reality was shaken, I actually got to see the sovereignty of God. The fact that he's sitting on a throne, the fact that, that he's actually sitting, a finished work, that he's not rattled by Uzziah's death, his lofty position, the fact that he's so big that his robe is, is, is filling the temple, all of these things speak to something we need to get a hold of. All of these things speak to God's complete and ultimate sovereignty over all things. Sovereignty. That's a, that's, a, that's a word we need to bite into and chew. This is what I'm talking about is big God theology. You and I need to develop big God theology. You, you're not ever going to be in danger of thinking that God is bigger than what He actually is. So don't be afraid to think about the bigness of who, of who God is. I, I really do think that uh, this big God theology will give us, it's absent from so many of God's people. Big God, big, big God theology gives us strength. I want you to, in your life, be able to, to see God on His throne. How, how God transcends all priority. How God rules over all governments. See the dominion of our good God ruling over every seemingly bad situation. See, see the text, what the text says, verse 1? And two, he's, that he's high and lifted up. That means that he is above all competition. He is above all contradiction. But, but why? Why did Isaiah actually see this? And maybe a better question. Sorry, Matt. Maybe a better question. Why, why do I need to see the sovereignty of God? What good is that to you in Gadsden, Alabama? Well, I'd like to answer that question in a couple of ways based on Isaiah's context. So here's the first way I'd like to answer it. <clears throat> sorrow and loss and pain and panic. So sorrow, loss, pain, panic. Anxiety, worry. All of those things empty us. They wear us out. All of those things squeeze the life out of us so that we now can be filled with the vision of God's glory and sovereignty over all things. Pain knocks the wind out so you can breathe in the goodness of God. So, so what about pain? We brought it up. But let me give you a couple of things about pain. Because of, because of hardness or hard pain, because of real loss, so when that happens, our unchanging God stands out more clear. When you hurt our unchanging God, He draws more near. When you're 
suffering, our unchanging God, he becomes more dear. I mean, think about what's going on in the text now. In the text, in the text, if the throne of Israel had not been empty, Isaiah would not have seen the enthroned God. If, if, if Uzziah had not died, Isaiah would have just had another one of those days. So it is with, with all of our with all of our losses. Flip it over now. Think about, think about the pain. With all of our losses and all of our pains and all of our tragedies, all of our frustrations, all of our sorrows, all of our disappointments, all of the negative things, the bad things, the hurtful things that happen to us, every one of those things has a mission. Every sorrow has a mission. I would be even willing to get on the edge and say, I, I think that even, even our struggle with sin has a mission. That struggle reminds us of something. That mission drives us. And the mission is to reveal and remind us of the enthroned God. One of the greatest, most securing things you'll ever do is fall into the sovereignty of our good God. I had to think this through just on a personal level. My, my son going through that window. Or, or, the, or the car wreck. Or the, or the breakup. It has a mission. See? It has a mission to reveal to us the enthroned God. The termination. The bankruptcy. You know that loneliness, I have single people at, at my church, some are single because of a tragic divorce, some uh, have been widowed or widowers, some have never gotten married, and, 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 and loneliness oftentimes is one of the battles that single people face. And I would just say to you, loneliness has a mission. That mission is to lead us to see and trust the goodness and the glory of God. You see what happens? When, 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 all of, when all other props are taken away, what happens is we learn to rest all of our weight on the goodness and the glory and the grace of God alone. Like this. Say it like this. <clears throat> when Uzziah dies, God becomes visible. So here's some application. We must not. I did four funerals last week. It seemed like one after the other, and just dealing with grieving people. And there's a difference uh, in, in those that are Christians that grieve and those that are not. And I just want to say to Christian people, I'm going to assume that most of you are Christians, we must not waste our griefs. We must not waste our sorrows. The, the, the pains that we go through, that God brings us through, those pains are there to draw us back. Those pains are there so that God can open up the curtain so that you might see the goodness and glory of God. There's something else I want you to see before I move on. Uzziah, think about where he was. Uzziah sat on the throne of Israel. Israel, God's chosen people. Israel, God's chosen 
people. So Uzziah sat on the throne of Israel, God's people. That throne is actually known as the throne of David. Throne of David. And although Uzziah lived a long time, ruled for 52 years, he sat on the throne longer than I've been alive. And I got a little gray in my beard. He, he sat on the throne longer than almost any other king. But just like every other king that's ever lived, sitting on the throne of David, Uzziah died. And Uzziah's death is a reminder of the true and better king who died not on a throne but on a cross. And he did so to redeem sinners. But this king, King Jesus, he didn't stay dead. This is what we celebrate. Happened on a Sunday. God raised him from the dead, and now he alone sits on the throne as King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and he now is sovereignly working in all of the events of your life to bring you back to him. You know the doctrine of providence? Providence. Doctrine of providence. Where I live in Charlotte, North Carolina, uh, there are lots of roads named Providence Road. Y'all have any Providence Roads here? Presbyterians came out of Presbyterians again. The Presbyterians came out of Pennsylvania, came down the Appalachian chain of mountains and eased into the Piedmont of the Carolinas and settled it in the 1750s or so. And when the Presbyterians got there, at that time they were really like a bunch of Puritans. And they named everything with a Christian name. And several roads, you can get mixed up in Charlotte because there are a couple of different Providence roads. And they named them Providence because those roads wind around. Sometimes you're north, sometimes you're south. Sometimes you don't know where you're going. But you stay on that Providence road, it'll finally get you to your destination. And Providence is like that. It's God working through the good and the bad, those things that are painful, those things that are good, and getting us to where he wants us to be. So, we got that settled. That's one point. Hard times are here. Hard times are here for God's glory. That glory is seen at its fullest at the cross of Jesus. Let me give you a second point to consider. Number two. <clears throat> God's glory, God's glory is also God's grace. God's grace. Let's go back to the scene, and um, I want you to see it in its entirety. And let me read part of it, and we'll just go through it. And uh, let's just walk through some of it, and I'll read a couple of things, verses 2, 3, and 4, maybe with some explanation. Uh, let's just take a look at it. So, we'll start in verse 1. In the year the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. So, the bigness of who God is, just a little piece of, of the robe of, of God is filling up this giant temple. Verse 2, above him stood the seraphim, the seraphim. I want to circle that word. That uh, word seraphim uh, literally means the burning ones. We don't have much other talk of who they are, just that they're actually on fire some kind of way. So above him stood the burning ones. Each one had six wings. So get in your mind this creature, six wings. With two wings, he covered his face, probably because he didn't, couldn't see the glory of God, covered his face. With two wings, he covered his feet, that is out of reverence and respect. And with two wings, he flew. And notice what they're doing, verse 3. 
Here is this antiphonal. I like to hear the choir do this. Here is this antiphonal calling one to another. This is what they're saying. Holy, holy, holy. It's the only time you're going to see this Old Testament. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. You see that song, Holy, Holy, Holy? Do you ever sing that here, Matt? Yeah. So you sing that song. By, by the way, you see it here, the first glimpse into heaven, Isaiah is seeing. They're singing, Holy, Holy, Holy. So they're singing it for several hundred years, several hundred years. John the Baptist uh, baptizes Jesus. Jesus walks and dies on the cross. Uh, God raises him from the dead. He ascends into heaven. After his ascension, John the Apostle, exiled to the island of Patmos, writes a book called Revelation. On a revelation, right? So part of his revelation is he sees into heaven, and what he sees is they're still singing this song. Several hundred years later, the exact same song, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord. Notice they're not singing honest, 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 or loving, loving, loving. All of those are true, powerful, powerful, power. no, it's the holiness of God. It's the three times holy. It's the song that they sing in heaven. It's the, it's the call of, of worship. And keep looking at it now, verse 3. Notice it's holy, 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 so we're singing about the holiness of God. But when it turns outward, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full, not of His holiness, but of His glory. So that holiness now dispersed on earth is His glory. And so we look around, we see the glory of God that points us to His holiness. See the conviction? Let me show you the conviction. There's a whole lot here. I love this passage. There's a whole lot here. Look at the conviction and the grace found in verse, verse 5. Look at Isaiah in verse 5. At the sight of this holy God. Watch it in verse 5. And I said, woe is me. I am lost, or I like the King James, I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst. In other words, I'm not the only one with a foul mouth. Everybody around me. I, I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the king. That, that's something important there. King Uzziah dies, now I've seen the king. I thought he was the king. No, God's the king. King, the Lord of hosts. And let's walk through it a little bit. Woe is me. You know what Isaiah? Isaiah feels it. Isaiah feels his sin most profoundly, and he is rightly afraid as a sinner in the presence of God. He deserves the fire of God to break out and to kill him. That, that the Lord is going to consume him. You know what he feels? This is what all sinners feel. This is what we're supposed to feel before we're converted. He feels the corruption of his own soul. In fact, not just himself. I live among people. He feels the corruption of his own culture. I mean, Jesus is the one who said in Matthew 15, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And that's what defiles the person. You know, you know what he said in verse 5? In verse 5, Isaiah is saying, I'm a, I'm a man of unclean lips. I am a foul-mouthed sinner, and I deserve to die. This, this three times holy God, this perfectly holy, infinitely holy, eternally, eternally holy God, I shouldn't be here. Isaiah is doing what few people do anymore. 
Isaiah is taking real responsibility for his sin. Realizing that he is a sinner. You know what else we we should realize? If if you're without Christ, so a sinner without Christ actually has no place in the presence of God. A sinner without Christ has no right to praise God, no excuses before God. A sinner without Christ actually has no hope from God. I think right here is one of those places in the Old Testament. I think in I think you have an Old Testament picture of a New Testament truth. You, 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 you see it and feel it in verses 4 and 5 when he talks about his pain. I mean, think about conversion. In, in every conversion, there is an agony of the soul. I realize I'm a sinner. There is a stab of our conscience. I'm guilty. There is a shame of our inward clean. Uh, our, our inward uncleanness, that's what oftentimes keeps people from coming to the church. They feel ashamed. There's the remorse for sin. If you're lost, there's the sensation of being lost and alone. And it sounds strange and harsh because American folk religion has forgotten the holiness of God. One of the things that I, even the form of what you do here at Gadsden, it should be a reminder, this is different than everything else that the holiness of God is only mitigated by the grace of God found in Jesus. Watch what happens when, watch what happens when Isaiah comes to the end of himself. If you haven't come to the end of yourself, you might not be converted. Isaiah came to the end of, end of himself. Watch what happens in verse 6 and 7. Let me read it to you in verse 6 and 7. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. Okay, so... Get the picture. He's got a pair of tongs. This seraphim does. And he went down to the altar where there's a burning coal. He picked it up with his tongs. Verse 7. And now he touched my mouth, which had to be terrible. Touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. Now, a live, think about it. Stay with me on this. A live coal from the altar of incense that burns in the presence of God. It's a reminder that only the fire of God can take away our guilt. But, but behind the love of God that takes away our guilt and the, forgiveness of, and the forgiveness of God that atones for our sin, behind all of that is the cross of Jesus. In fact, keep looking at verse 6. In verse 6, the fiery coal, look where it comes from. The fiery coal that touched Isaiah's lips was from the altar now, this is Old Testament. The altar in the Old Testament. Those of you that read the Old Testament, remember? The altar in the Old Testament, that was the place where the holiness of God was satisfied by the death of a sacrifice. Remember? They would kill a sacrificial animal and burn it on the altar, a substitute. So, a live coal from that altar, you know what that does? Man, if you love theology, this should uh, really just, this encapsulates the idea of atonement. Atonement. That means that our sins are paid for by the death of another. That's what was touched to his mouth. It's the idea of the word propitiation, which means Jesus takes the punishment for sinners, and thereby he has satisfied the anger and judgment of God. That's a great word. If you don't like that word, how about expiation? It's the idea of expiation. That Jesus not only 
takes the place. He takes the guilt and the, the shame of sins gone. Or maybe you don't like that word too good. I'll give you another one. It's the idea of reconciliation. That once we were away from God, dead in sin, now we've been made alive and are called His children. Reconciled. That makes it so that I can sleep at night. Because through Jesus Christ, you are made right with God. Listen to what happens in verse 7. Notice the text, verse 7. As soon, look at it, as soon as the coal touched his lips. Verse 7. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips as soon as it happened. Two things. Your guilt is taken away, that's one, and your sin is atoned for. Guilt taken away, sin atoned for. Here is a work of grace. We sing this. Certainly you sing it here, Amazing Grace. Here is a work of God's grace. Isn't that what Jonathan Edwards said? Read as much Jonathan Edwards as you can take. I read it. I don't understand it all. Some of it I do. I like it in little bite-sized pieces. Jonathan Edwards says that we don't bring anything to salvation except the sin that makes it necessary. And notice that in this text, God ministers, he ministers to where the sin is. Two things are removed in verse 7. Guilt. That word guilt, that is the inner shame. You felt it before. It's hard to live with guilt, and in Christ it's taken away. But the glory of God's grace at the cross, Jesus takes away guilt and shame. Both are taken away. Notice also in verse 7 that the, the, the text says that sin is atoned for. So if guilt is the inner corruption that's taken away, sin is the outer damage, like a reputation, damaged. Especially if your sin becomes public and people know about it, you're thought of differently. And this text says it's not just inner forgiveness, it's the outer damage that, that when God forgives us and redeems us, He redeems the whole person. I won't stay here very long, but let me just say this is important as we continue to devolve in such a sexually damaged world, this text reminds us God redeems the whole person. At the cross of Jesus, people are made new. Marriages are repaired. Futures are brought into hope. And this redemption is made real and has immediate effects because of the transforming power of God in Jesus. And then, we all kind of know this passage is missionary. Here I am, send me. It was only after Isaiah is changed that he can hear in verse 8, God say, who will go for us? Only after his change. Before Isaiah can say, send me, Isaiah had to say, save me. And, and part of what I just want to start our week off with is saying, you are made to glorify God. Hard times we face, they are here for God's glory. And God's glory is also God's grace and found in its pinnacle in Jesus. Would you join me as we pray together? Your heads bowed this, morning as, uh, this evening as we go to the Lord in a time of commitment and prayer. What I'd like to do is, is really just <clears throat> offer a brief invitation. Part of our tradition as Baptists, we are revivalist, revivalistic people. That means that in a worship service, we believe that we sing and pray, have the Bible 
hear a sermon and offer a time for response. And we'd like to do that here uh, this evening. It won't be long, just give you a chance if you'd like to come and have your pastor or someone pray with you, come forward and just for a time of being prayed over and prayed with. Possibly you'd like to talk to me or Matt or one of the pastors with what, about what it means to give your life to Jesus. Maybe you want to pray. This is what I did Sunday. I asked our people to come forward and pray for someone you know that needs to hear the message of God's goodness and grace found in Jesus. The Lord has spoken to your heart. In a few moments when we sing, we'll invite you to come forward. Father, thank you for the grace you've given us in Christ. Thank you for mitigating judgment through Jesus. Thank you for our Redeemer. Thank you for the hard times you've sent into our lives. We pray that you'd use them for your own glory. We pray for this church and lift them up to you. Be honored here tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.